This podcast is brought to you by Infinite Resources, a local staffing agency connecting diverse job candidates in central Iowa companies. All right, welcome to my second episode or podcast of The Roads Taken. I'm excited to have a uh, guest with me that I've known for quite some time. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about his road and some of the lessons he's taken or learned from that road as a young man, uh, military man, and then now as a professional. So, uh, Rico, thank you for joining us today. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, Today's a special day, as you know. We're filming this on November 10th. Uh, so happy birthday! Yeah, same to you. Happy birthday! Yeah, I think two hundred forty eighth. Is that right? Yep. Two hundred forty eighth uh, birthday of the Marine Corps. Uh, so, uh, if for those of you that don't know, I was in the Marine Corps, and uh, for those of you that can't tell, Rico is was in the Marine Corps as well. Uh, so let's dive into it. Uh, I know a little bit about you. So you're from St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Tell me, tell me about that. Your childhood, a little bit. Yeah. So, uh, born in St. Louis, Missouri. Basically grew up in Central West End, which is obviously the central part of town. And uh, my uh, the interesting story about it is that my mother is my, my grandmother's from Mississippi, mm. and so is my grandfather. And uh, obviously, I hear all the stories of them growing up, but it makes more sense why we had the life we had. And apparently, when she was being born, my grandfather rode a mule into town to get the doctor mm. to come back and deliver my grandmother. So it's kind of like a weird situation, but, you know, it, their, their dynamic as a couple really played into our family life. So my grandfather, when he came to Missouri, was obviously to get away from the racism and everything that was going, going on in Mississippi and ended up working for the Catholic Church. Mm. And janitor, you know, didn't have much education, neither did my grandmother. But within all that, he ends up in a house that once belonged to the Catholic Church. And... As I understand it, uh, obviously they couldn't afford it, but the Catholic Church was able to provide them a house for their family. I ended up raising about 13, 14 kids in this house, and to include grandkids wow. that went through this house. So we, I grew up with my cousins, aunts, uncles, and uh, our sense of family was huge. And my mother finally married, not my father, but she finally married. She had me when she was very young. Yeah. Actually had to drop out of school. So had me, had me when she was very young. And uh, when she finally married, we moved from that house that everybody grew up in to the north side of town. And so started our life there. And it was basically different. You know, it's, it's still inner city. Uh, but schools were a little bit better than where I was going before. Yeah. And my mother's drive was always education, education, education. And meanwhile, I wanted to be an athlete, you know. And I think the one thing that hit home was – it doesn't matter how good you are. There's always going to be somebody better. So you always have to prepare yourself to fall back on something. And so that's when education really became important to me. And that's how I ended up going to college, being the first one in that part of my family, between my cousins and my siblings, yeah. to go to college and ended up being in Orange City, Iowa, Northwestern. And the only reason I ended up there, because I had full rides to St. Louis University, you know, Eastern Missouri University. The only reason I ended there is because the – wrestling coach sent me a personal letter, you know, as opposed to all the letters you get, I'm sure they're personal, but his was handwritten. Yeah. Three pages. And all he did was talk about the experience that I would have underneath his tutelage. And that's what drew me to Iowa. And then now we have you here. So the, the, going back to the family dynamics, 
What are some of the things you remember? You, clearly, it's a, it was tight-knit. What, what are some of those lessons of, of uh, being around your family, maybe your grandparents, and then moving away? How, how did that impact you? It was rough, and I'm pretty sure that that was the reason that I decided to join the military. I had no interest in the military, and talking to my uncles, you know, they were anti-military. I had a couple uncles who couldn't get in. I had a couple uncles that were discharged, and I had no interest in it. You know, growing up in St. Louis, especially a part of town that I grew up in, your sense of community did not expand to a political efficacy. You stayed in your community, and you just kind of dealt with politics. And military, the way my family thought of military was, yeah, Uncle Sam's sending our young men away, Mm -hmm. and they're dying, and we need men like you to stay. And so that that really altered my vision of military. And it wasn't until graduating college that I decided that the Marine Corps was where I wanted to be. But it wasn't based off a lot of things that people talk about, like traveling and um, money or education. Mine was, I just needed another sense of community. Yeah. So I, I finished college, uh, Northwestern, didn't know anybody there, you know, made a few friends along the way, which was awesome. But after that, I started working for a congressman at 17th District, Rock Island, Illinois. And that was an awesome experience for me and was driving me towards politics. Mm-hmm. And then General Krulak came out to one of his fundraisers. It was for Lane Evans. And Lane Evans, was uh, he was a Marine at mm. one point of his career before he became a congressman. But he was always known for being a part of the, the Veterans Committee and always donating like half of his uh, what he, his earnings mm-hmm. to back to different charities and the military. So obviously I had a real close connection with him. And once I heard Krulak talk about family, you know, commitment, dedication, being a part of something bigger than yourself with the job already offered to me yeah. by Lane Evans and Reverend Jesse Jackson, I went across the river and signed a contract. And again, interesting because I walked in all the services first and I knew I needed college payback and Marine Corps recruiters was the first one I talked to. They're like, yeah, we don't pay back college. Yeah. You know? And then I went to the army and they're like, yeah, we'll pay it back. And the Navy will pay back a portion. But when I was really trying to make the decision, I was back in the Marine Corps office and I looked up and I, I didn't know who Krulak was before I saw him on the wall. And so when I asked him who he was, and they said, yeah, that's General Krulak. He's our Marine Corps Commandant. I said, this is the organization I want to be a part of. And I'll deal with college loans when I get there. Yeah. So that, that's what kind of mastered my transition from uh, the type of person I was growing up to the interests and desires I had once I got older. Sounds like the congressman played a pretty, uh, pretty important part of your life. Very, very big a part. He even came out to my graduation. I graduated company on from boot camp, and he was right there, and it was pretty awesome. Nice. Yeah, I, I, I Googled him when I found out, um, and I, he, he's an interesting guy. I believe he's passed, right? Mm-hmm. Passed yeah. away. Yep, yeah. Parkinson's disease. Yeah, so, so what, what, what about his mentorship impacted you the most? So, again, coming into a mindset I did not have an interest in anything military and he he just made contributions and efforts and all of his fundraisers all of his events there was always military personal around and it never clicked never did anything for me you know my focus was I want this guy reelected I'm going to go up to Washington and work for him and I think it's because he was just real and I've talked to him I've talked to his campaign manager. I talked to the guy who actually ended up being a congressman several years 
after he passed. Like I was very close connected to them, but he was different. And even with the guy that was running against him, like the way he set himself apart from everybody else, I could tell that his interest was in, again, community, families, people getting better, the government, politics getting better. And so that's how he had me completely linked into yeah. anything that he spoke about. Yeah, and, and just based on what I know about you, it's still something that you kind of value and you, you, you hold absolutely uh, hold close to yourself. So, so you joined the Marine Corps because uh, the congressman and uh, General Krulak, uh, when did you start regretting? Was it when you got off the bus and started getting ripped into, or was it when uh, they did the tornado drills and through your wall lockers or your foot lockers? Yeah. When I, was it like that, oh, shoot, what did I do moment? You know, it, it didn't happen for me. What? And it's, so I went to college first. Yeah. I had a close family, but even growing up, like, I had problems. Like, yeah. like things that happened in my neighborhood, you know, it, it makes you mature really right. quickly. And so when I get to boot camp, like, that drill instructor was not scarier than my mother. Mm. You no, know, was not scarier than my stepdad. And it, and I remember saying this multiple times, and this is mind over matter, yeah. right? Like, I'm here. I know I can do the things that they're asking me to do. Oh, they want it done faster? Yeah, I can do that too. And if I can't, they're going to get in my face and make me do it faster. But I think the, the only concerns I had was that we've, I mean, at this point, there's like 89 of us in this platoon. Yeah. And I was just general population. Yeah. Like I was nobody. And the drill instructor stopped me. This was after we had been picked up because, you know, you had that week of receiving and right. collecting everything. And now you get dropped to your drill instructors. And the second day of that, he stopped and asked me if I was motivated. I was like, yes, sir. He's like, you're going to be my guide. I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> but I was like, yes, sir. And literally the next day, the one guy that we had was fired. And I was the guide. And that, for me, was a turning point. Yeah. Because... I was a big brother, so I've been used to, you know, taking care of my siblings. And my mother worked all the time, so I was the one who got them off the bus. I was the yeah. one who got them dinner. I was the one who got them ready for bed. You know, I was the one who made sure their homework was done. I fell back on my studies because I was so focused on theirs. And she'd get home about 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, and she'd leave me something to take to school the next day. So I was very used to leading people. Yeah. But leading 88 other people that comes from all different walks of life was like, what did I get myself into? Right. You know, because I wanted to be a leader. You know, I, I, I knew that I, when I joined, yeah, I want to be a sergeant major. That was always my goal really? from, from the moment I saw what he did and understood what was going on with the military. It's like, yeah, that's the guy I want to be. And uh, so now I'm dealing with, all right, everybody's different. Everybody's yeah. not the same. Now I have to figure out how to reach the ones that are the issues that just don't want to be. So you must have been 22, 23 when you joined? Yep, 23 years old. Yeah, yeah, that, that probably made a big difference. College probably matured you, your, I think your so. upbringing. Yeah, yeah and push-ups were probably not a thing for you. You could just... I, yeah, and I was surprised. You know, I, like, I, I won events. I won the obstacle course. You know, yeah. I, I, the, I was a bad runner. You know, I ran distance in high school, but I did not run in college. Yeah. Uh, so, like, the PFT, the, the three-mile run on the PFT was a challenge for me, but... Uh, everything else just clicked yeah. and came easy. Even drill. I've never drilled a day in my life, but as soon as I knew what I need to do, I was doing it right off the bat. And I don't attribute that to anything of me. I attribute that to all the people that have kind of mentored me and grew me along the way. They just kind of got me in the mindset that, you know, you can achieve anything you put your mind to. Right. And if someone is expecting you to do something, 
you've got to come through. You've got to follow through with their expectation because they're relying on you. And so that's, that was boot camp for me. Yeah. You know, now I've got other recruits relying on me. Now I've got drill instructors relying on the platoon for drills and things like that. And all that, I think, encouraged me just to be a better person and to ensure that I can be good for everybody else that followed me. So what, what are some of the challenges that you faced as, as the guide? I, no surprise to anybody, I was never the guide. I was actually the scribe, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I got fired a couple times and hired again. And so I had somewhat of a leadership role, but never the guide. So what yeah. were some of the challenges you faced, um, maybe specific individuals that you talked about? Sure. Uh, always being first. I, I had to be first. Like I couldn't be the guy behind because if I was the guy behind, I ended up looking at the guy who was first. Uh, so that was a huge challenge. And now that I'm first, I still had to go through and set everybody else up for yeah. success. And that was also a challenge, you know? And I, I think the, the biggest pieces of both of those is that I don't, I don't feel like I was mentally or physically prepared yeah. to manage it. And we got to, there was a board for who was going to be the honor grad, the, the company honor grad. Like I had already won my platoon level. There was a board for the company honor grad. And I went on that board against guys that, I'm like, these guys are going to blow me out of the water. Like, this guy looks sharp in uniform. I saw this guy run the PFT, you know, the other day. Like, he's fast. And uh, they all seemed pretty intelligent, you know, when they spoke. And we're talking about young kids. We're talking about 20, 21-year-olds, some 18-year-olds. And I was so impressed and thrown by them that I just knew I was going to walk in that board and walk out, not the guy. And I walked out, and I was the guy. And the next day when we decided we are going to do uh, the Grim Reaper, you know, mm-hmm. the final part of the crucible, and we had to climb up that mountain, and I'm up front, and I'm carrying the American colors, and I'm falling back. Oh. You know, I am falling back. And we're on that incline, and I'm just like, I am not going to make it. And the only thing that happened was the company commander at the time, who I had maybe seen his face three times in the uh, three months of boot camp, looks back at me and says, don't fall back on me again, guide. And yeah. he said it like something was going to happen to me if I did. <laughs> and that encouraged me to just start pressing on. And, you know, we got to the top and you know how it is. Everybody's crying and things like that. Yeah. And I even knew that with what I had just accomplished, then there was so much more that I was going to have to do. So when did you graduate boot camp? What year? I graduated in, uh, I went to boot camp in November 1998. So I would have graduated in February 1999. Gotcha. So you got done with boot camp. What, what, what's your next step? What, where'd you go? What was your duty station? After boot camp, I went to Cherry Point, North Carolina. Um, and my plan there, I, I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted okay. to be a politician, you know. So when they were like contracts, contracts, you know, I actually signed an open contract because all I really knew was the rifleman. Yeah. And uh, during boot camp, they came back because I was uh, the honor grad and gave me an option of three MOSs. And when I saw the one for legal, still didn't know what it was, uh, said yes. And uh, went to school out in Camp Johnson, did about two years of that at a squadron in Cherry Point. And then we started kicking off with Iraq and Afghanistan. And now I wanted to deploy, but I did not want to deploy as a legal aide or a legal <laughs> clerk. So I started looking for units and I found the unit in Des Moines, Iowa. Yeah. And, uh, I didn't know that they were slated. I just knew that they were reserves, and eventually those guys are going to get out there and deploy. And so I went there and checked in, and they said, all right, well, you're staff, and you're not, you're not going to deploy with the guys. You're going to stay here during peacetime. And my response was, that's not going to work for me. What can I do to get out with those guys? And they're like, well, you're going to need to get the MOS of 0311. 
And so that's when I started going through my on-the-job training for 0311 just so I could deploy. How does that work on the job training? So you didn't have to go to SOI, I'm assuming, or, or did I you? I did eventually when I needed to do the team leaders course. But what happened, Vance, you remember Vance, Sergeant Major Vance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sergeant Major Vance became my mentor, and he had, like, this package of stuff yeah. that I was responsible for completing and checking off. And so I got a lot of it done stateside because I was able to go to – different units uh, they were doing some of the training but a lot of it was happening when we were prior to deployment when okay. we went out to uh california gotcha and, uh all the evolutions that you guys were doing preparing for combat yeah i was doing just to get the mos oh 311 yeah so that's how that all played out you know I, if you recall i was like your training clerk yeah and i was a rifleman and uh third platoon so that's yeah. what was going on with all of that yeah it was it was weird for us I, we don't know. Like m my perspective is, I just saw a bunch of new guys coming in because mm -hmm. there's a, a Gennady's friend. I can't remember, but there's a couple other guys like you that uh, were just trying to get in it. Yeah. Uh, they some of them were inactive at the time, mm -hmm. and they found their buddies and they said, "How do I go?" Which oh, yeah. is pretty badass. And uh, so I remember you were new. There's a couple other ones that were new, and so we'd see you guys come and go, and we're like, and the the other thing is, you guys were all pretty high ranking. Yeah. I was a corporal at the time, so. Yeah. There were sergeants, staff sergeants, and some one of them, I remember, uh, he was a corporal, but he was probably like 29, 28 at the mm -hmm. time, and but he had been out for a few years and said, I don't care about the rank, I just want to go, and yeah. he came He came along. So, uh, so yeah, so this is uh, our connection. We, we, uh, we got to know each other a little bit um, at uh, 224. So you, let's get back to the, the pre-deployment. What, what are some of the things you remember about the 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 pre-deployment training um so some of the things i remember most is that i mean one just just talking just quality of marines uh just being impressed with the reservists uh, again i'd already been in a fleet for three almost four years at this point and uh i've with the air wing you know and sometime you know going down on june and being with the grunts depending on what was happening with my unit that day uh but just seeing the caliber of reservists and what you guys were doing to prepare for a war that nobody knew right. they were coming back home to uh, really impressed me and just kind of made me want to make sure that I'm doing exactly what I needed to do. So we don't know who's going to be standing next to each other. And I don't want to be the guy responsible for the other guy. And uh, I, I think mostly what I remember is for me, it was, it was tough. It was challenging. And I remember looking at you guys thinking like you guys, got this wrapped yeah. in a bag and uh, I, I think the scariest part of it is when we were because uh, we went through Camp Pendleton and then we ended up down in San Diego right for that uh, Stu Seagal yes. studios right and it it brought some different realities to our mission and I think uh, at that point the difficulty was convincing myself and my family that this was still the thing mm -hmm. for me to do and that was, a, that was the biggest challenge I had then because once I was committed, I was committed, but I, I don't think I was ever able to say why I'm volunteering to do this. Right. You guys had to go. Right. You know, I volunteer for it, and I've never been able to say this is the reason I volunteered. To this day? To this day. Really? To this day, I, I don't know. Well, so, so why were you searching for those units that might deploy then? I didn't feel comfortable with – 
any of my brothers, mm-hmm. um, to include my brother who had joined the Marine Corps long before I did. Sure. And even when he joined, and I, I, I made a decision I was going to join, I thought that I was going to join and end up right where he is and be right there by him. And if any crazy wars kick off, you know, I'm going to have his back, he's going to have mine. And so that didn't happen, obviously, because of how it works. Right. I didn't know how it worked then. But uh, so now he's getting out and I'm staying in. So now what's my drive, mm. right? Like I can get out right now and go and spend time with my family. I can get right now and find a better job. But if I'm going to stay in, I'm going to stay in and be a part of something that's going to make a difference. Sure. And so when Afghanistan kicked off and then Iraq, I knew that I had to be a part of that. Yeah. So Stu Seagal, this is, this is a point that I'd like to explore a bit more because uh, I don't know if we we're in the same trainings at all, or I'm sure we were in some of them, but do you remember, is that the place where we had some live munition, like the, the rubber bullets? Um, yep. Rubber uh, bullets, the kill house. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I was not part of this uh, evolution, but if I remember correctly, there was one evolution where they put us up against Navy SEALs. And then uh, for some reason, um, they forgot to tell the our unit that, to wear the masks. And then, yes. uh, do, do you remember? I do. I, yeah, vaguely. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So, so the Navy SEALs came in with their all their gear and uh, and lit us up. <laughs> and uh, thankfully, I was not that part of that group. And and uh, eventually realized we were not prepared for those uh, <laughs> munitions and. The story goes that uh, I guess that that platoon was ready to rock and roll with the Navy SEALs, oh, and yeah. thankfully we outnumbered them. But <laughs> that, that that I remember that that was good extra, good training, mm, good training. They, I think isn't that when they hired some uh, some some um, actors and yep. and acted like Bunch uh, of actors there? Yeah, and I don't think I even understood most of it. Like I thought these were all military dudes, and this is just another military training. I didn't realize that this was like a set yeah. of actors. And once I realized that, you know that made me feel a little bit better about it, you know, because now these guys are just acting. But once those realities start to set in, like the kill house and, yeah, yeah you're shot. You yep. know? Yeah, it's a rubber bullet right now. You know, it's a paintball right. gun right now. But the reality is once we get overseas, you know, it, when that hits, it's going to do some damage. Yeah. So you need to be better. So we got overseas. So this is uh, 2004, uh, pre-deployment training's done. What do you remember about that, that night or that trip? To Kuwait, who? So I don't. I don't know where you. I, I assume that we were all together because you were still weapons. Yeah. Right? So I, yep. I'm assuming that you were somewhere in the vicinity of us. But I, I remember one. You know, getting off and it just being hot and dirty and everybody's yelling, and everybody's trying to figure things out, and it's just like a very organized chaos. Yeah. Going on, and in the meantime, nothing's happening on the base that we're at, right? Because we're in a safe zone. Yeah. And uh, I remember us getting going, and I remember one of the uh, convoys heading down to Mamadia. And it was literally right when we just got in country, and the IED. Yeah. And uh, everything that took place from there, you know, the vehicles, the chaos running off. Uh, I, I remember I came to, and I thought I had just jumped out of the vehicle and was heading towards where we need to go. And there was one of our Marines, uh, Walker Scott, who was like, no, you were out. You are out for like five minutes. All right. Yeah. Let's back up. So, so we're talking, I'm not even sure I know this story. So, so this is where we're down and we're back in Mamudia. We huh? haven't gotten there yet. Okay. We're on our way there. Okay. Um, and uh, we So you were on there. a convoy yep. to? 
to Mamudia? Yeah, so maybe we were separate. Oh, from we that. were yeah. separate because okay, yeah. we did not take the convo. We 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 flew in, we flew into Baghdad. So you guys must have been the lead unit to to go. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not sure about that. Yeah, but, so you yeah. convoyed. I did not. Yeah, convoyed. we convoyed out. Oh shoot! <laughs> yeah, Tell me out. more. Yeah, uh, and and obviously a lot of it becomes a blur to me, and I'm yeah. pretty sure, like back then, I can remember every single moment. Right, right. This is 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. yes. But I, it's uh, so it, it. I mean, there was there was a firefight. You know, there was a few IEDs that went off, and there was a couple lives taken uh, because of that, and that just the the horror of that alone, mm. even with all the training. Even with all the education, even right. with all the information, they have been feeding us the horror of that alone. Already put in my head that we're not, we're not going to make it back. We're not even going to make it yeah. to our fob right now. Right, you know. And so we get there, and we're, we're getting settled in, and they're arranging who's going to be platooning or patrolling, who's going to be QRF, and you know who's going to be maintaining the towers. And all that mattered to me was that whatever I did, I was doing it with the guys that I was with, and mm-hmm. that that's kind of where I stayed content with. So even when they try to pull me to go back to the training piece, because you guys still had stuff you had to do down there for, yeah. for a lot of the uh, getting used to the, the ACOG, I believe that's, that was the first, one of the first elements down there that we had to do. And uh, I, I won't say that I refused, I begged refusingly to stay with uh, the platoon I was in. And uh, so obviously then we start patrolling yeah. You know. So, so uh, just for clarification, our unit uh, was tasked with this area of the country that they uh, eventually, I don't know if it was before we got there or after we got there during when we got there, was referred to the Triangle of Death, uh, which was about 10 minutes south of Baghdad. Mm-hmm. Um, Mahmoudia was the city, the major city. Lutafia and Yusufia were mm-hmm. the, the other two yep. uh, cities. So did, were you at Mahmoudia or were you one of the platoons that got sent to one of these other? Camp, Camp Hit yep. is where I was in Mahmoudia. And uh, most of our patrols were up in Ramadi. And then the deal that we had, where we all got coined the nickname Mad Ghost yeah. down in Yusufia. Yeah. So Nice. So you, um, so what, what was some of the missions that you all were tasked with doing? Remind me, what platoon were you in? I was with, I was third platoon. Third platoon. Okay. Yep. yep. Third platoon. Uh, third squad. Uh, and uh, I, I, the ones that I remember the most were the ones for the looking for the high volume targets. Yeah. And uh, what I definitely remember of those, and obviously at this time we all have an understanding of the Geneva Convention, and I think I had may have had a little bit more of appreciation for it because I was active duty. You right. Know, and, some of the reserve guys, you know, their concern was, well, this is my job. This is what I'm going to do. And yeah. A lot of me was like, all right, so is this what I should be doing? You know, I, I know I can do it and get away with it, but it's it's probably not something that should be happening because I need to respect the Geneva Convention. So that presented some challenges, you know, when I think at one point it came down and we were told to no longer go into mosque. And so we've got a card that's got an individual on there that everyone's saying inside that mosque. And so we had to make some decisions in. Uh, a lot of the decisions we made were to apprehend the terrorists yeah. and it was to respect the Geneva Convention. And I, I think it just took a minute for us to really understand why we had the options to do the things that we did and why we were restricted from doing the things that we restricted. And those are the ones that stand out to me the most because I feel that, one, we accomplished a lot. Right. Um, there's only one other infantry unit that I did it. Middle Eastern deployment with, and I was one seven, and obviously those guys were beast. Yeah, uh, and so just in comparison, even with the guys who were had deployed to Iraq at that point, I think three or four times. Yeah, um, 
we were about at the same level yeah. as, as far as like impact and interest and what we need to get done. And what stood out to me the most was that even while we're trying to do our job, there's a lot that we had to, that we were confined to that I felt sometimes prevented us from doing our job. Right. Yeah. It was pretty wild times. You um, talked about some of the missions and high value targets and, and some of the things that you were asked to do. Do you remember, um, well, it would have been 19 years ago this week, mm-hmm. the battle of Fallujah kicked mm-hmm. off. And, uh, I, if I if I remember correctly, a lot of us were wondering: Are we going to get? Are we? Are, are they going to ask us to go up there? And, and truthfully, a lot of us were like, "Let's go, mm-hmm. let's go get some." And then eventually, it turned out, even though we thought we we were pretty pretty good to go, um, there was still a stigma on reservists, and yeah. they they didn't call us up there. But lo and behold, uh, when Fallujah kicked off, what happened in our mm-hmm. in our area of operation? Do you remember all the? All the, all the action that took place right after that? Yeah, I absolutely do. And uh, even just us being a stronghold, we were very decent. And even with the attachments that we had, I felt that we did a pretty good job. You know, uh, One, of protecting each other. Uh, two, still doing the things we need to do. But uh, I know you recall this. It wasn't a day after we left Camp Hit that the terrorists were able to get into that base, yeah. blow up the internet center where all these Marines were blow up the command center. And at that point, a different organization had the base at the time and us hearing that on our way up, you know, I think it was Kuwait is where we were getting out of there at, uh, was one, it was humbling. And two, it was, it was kind of a shock, you know, like we, we kept these guys out for this entire time we were here. How did these guys finally get in? Right. We, um, so tomorrow's uh, Veterans November 11th is uh, Veterans Day, nationally recognized, and tomorrow is the day that um, Gino uh, Peter Giannopoulos mm-hmm. died. So I, I always, this whole week is, is kind of a, a big week for for our unit because within, again, the days all blur and it's been a long time, but within about a week we were losing guys left and right, and um, it got pretty scary. Uh, but it really started hitting home when. Found out Gino died. Yeah. Uh, so Peter was uh, my, um, when we were at uh, Camp Pendleton on the pre-deployment, he was our neighbor. He, he was my neighbor. Kind of connected with him. I think I would have connected you with you too because um, he was college educated. He went to Purdue. He was a, a, another college athlete. Not that I was a college athlete, but he was a hockey player. And yep. uh, he, a uh, little bit of a brainiac. Uh, he, if I remember right, National Merit Scholar. So mm-hmm. Went out with him a couple of times when we were over in uh, Pendleton. And what, do you remember anything about that when you heard about, because Gino was, uh, although we ended up losing 13 Marines in our battalion, uh, Gino was pretty, probably, in my view, the only one that I really knew well. Yeah. Um, do you remember hearing about Gino's I, passing? I, absolutely. Uh, I, and the little bit of knowledge and information, just, I mean, everything that you just said, like you could pick that up on him, like within minutes of talking to him and, you're 100% correct. And, uh, yeah, I absolutely remember that the incident that took his life and just the, the concern and care for why did this happen to him, right? Right. Like, he's he's got goals. He's got visions outside of this. Mm-hmm. Once this war is over, this guy's going to be leading some company or, you know, he's going to be an exec somewhere. And so when that when that happened, you know, that, that told me that it can happen to any one of us and, like, nothing that we are doing 
is going to prevent that except for what we were doing for each other. And his was still unpreventable. Right. You know, when, when we start, we read the, uh, we, we read the, um, his citation, you know, we, we read everything about what took place today. It's, it was unpreventable. And yeah. it, yeah, it was a travesty that the, anybody whose life was taken over in Iraq, but to not be as closely connected, you know, but still have a really good understanding for an individual and who they are. And then they go, you know, that's, that was pretty rough. Yeah. I've had the opportunity. So he, uh, he went to high school with one of my college buddies, interestingly enough. And so when I go up in May every year to visit my college buddy, uh, I get to go visit his gravestone and I've had the opportunity to meet his father, his mom, a bunch of the, um, the, the Marines from uh, the Chicago area mm -hmm. get together on Memorial day and I have a little grill out, wow. have some drinks. So I've had the opportunity to do that once. And, um, yeah, um, you're, you're exactly right. That guy would have been a beast to do oh, some yeah. great things. And so would the other ones. I didn't yeah. know them well, but I've, I've looked them up, and the other 12 guys uh, were awesome men as well. Yeah. So uh, so we, uh, we, went, we got through November in, um, well, not in all one piece. So a lot of us uh, died or many more actually got injured. I remember getting into the chow hall and starting seeing some of the pictures of some of the some of the Marines that were getting uh, wounded. And I'm like, sheesh, this list keeps getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. Um, what was your closest um, mission where you, you were like, oh, man, this, this, this is not going to end well for me? I think the Yusufia uh, evolution. I think uh, when, again, that we showed up, right, and obviously they weren't expecting us, uh, but when we showed up, we said it. And then when all that kicked off, the next day, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm at this time. I'm with Sergeant Harleman, Harleman. Okay, it, uh, and we're there because he's the guide, and he's with us at this point. And like everything's going around, RBGs, like there people are shooting. We don't know where we're shooting. Everybody's like sighted. Iraqi nationals are running around with limbs mm. in their hands, you know, limbs of other people in their hands, limbs of themselves in their hands. And I didn't think we were going to get out of it. I didn't think we were going to make it back yeah. to, to our, to where we were bedding down at that day. So yeah. I, 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 and everything else, even with, you know, what we saw, even when they tried to hit the fob, you know, I was always still pretty like comforted and the guys I was with yeah. our environment, you know, the, the training that the guys I was with that went through that I, 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 I never really worried about there being an internal issue. Uh, during all these, but it's the, the external stuff didn't bother me as much either because I felt like we were prepared for it. And, right. You know, when, when it's our day, it's our day, but uh, un until then we're going to keep trekking. And that, that even following um, the events that took place in Yusufia, it's what continued to get me through day by day with the deployment. I stopped writing letters. Yeah. I stopped reading letters. Uh, I stopped going to the internet cafe. Um, I even stopped looking at the pictures of the guys on the walls, mm. you know, because I mentally, I had to disconnect myself from what I would ever want to have when I get back home. And yeah. Once I did that, that helped me get moving the way I felt like I needed to be moving while we were deployed. The other big event or mission I, that I suppose we, we can look back on, it was pretty big, was the, the election. Mm -hmm. um, uh, as as is clear to anybody that was alive at that time, uh, Saddam Hussein was a dictator. Uh, Iraq had never really experienced a, an election before, mm -hmm. 
and uh, and they decided this is the time we're going to try and get an election and, and stand up a government. And we played a pretty pivotal role um, mm-hmm. in trying to make that happen. Uh, tell us about what you remember about that. So I remember it seemed like it was going on forever. Yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, seeing the, the they're from Syria, right? The women from Syria all lined up to get inside to vote. Oh, yeah, I'm right. not sure. Okay, I think it was the women from Syria lined up against how to vote. We're responsible for making sure nothing happened to them, but everybody was fearing what was going to take place yeah. on election day, right. you know, because they're being told not to go vote. They're being told that, no, this is the way your government is going to be ran, so right. stay put and stay out of it. Oh, by the way, if you do, you know, we're going to make sure that you don't make it out of there alive. Mm-hmm. And so now we're basically a guard force and protection force. And uh, I'm pretty sure, because I, I didn't know enough about it, but I'm pretty sure guys were positioned where they needed to be far enough out to protect us inside or to pass the word inside. But I just remember, like, thinking two things. One, um, one was my why. Why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. I, I just did not at the time have the understanding for why they would need us to be doing what we're doing right now. And then the other piece of the why was – why can't they do this stuff themselves? You know, why this is not why I came over here for it. Right. You know, guard somebody while they did an election. And I think it would, it would be some years before it registered with me, the importance of what we did that day. You know, for me that day, it was, all right, this is what I'm doing. And I, I don't want to be here, but I'm going to do it because I was told to do it. But years later, I would realize that. Yeah. So if, if we didn't do that, who knows what that outcome would have been. Yeah. And ultimately the, the, the elections did not result in a, perfect government coming out of Iraq and they still have their issues. But when I look back on it, that's one of the proudest things that I can say because Iraq was, uh, I often asked and questioned when I was over there, are we doing what we're supposed to be doing? Are we here for a good reason? And so this election, keep in mind, my undergrad was political science. So this election really kind of made me feel, all right, if nothing else, we, we're, we're going to try and get people their voice and, mm-hmm. and try and get people to elect their own leaders. And whatever happens after that, I can say I helped with that. So yeah, good. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm like you. Like the further it goes along, the more I appreciate that, especially knowing how, um, how democracy is fragile. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. So for them to keep doing, again, not perfect, but better than a dictatorship, mm-hmm. I would say. Yep. So our deployment ends. Um, come back to the States. How did that deployment impact your life? How did, what were some of the things that it gave you negative, positive? What are some of the things that, that you think came out of that? Yeah. Um, interesting because, uh, once we were back and now I'm home and by home, I mean, Iowa at this time, I hadn't gone back to St. Louis yet for probably about a month. Okay. I didn't feel right being home. Right. Like I, I know we have to do our time. You know, you, you get your period, then you come back and, you know, if your unit's called again, you go back out. But I didn't feel right being home. Like I. I initially started looking for other units. They were deploying uh, to go back out. And then um, sometime around there, we got back in March. Right. Like towards the end of March, I ended up going back to St. Louis in May for Mother's Day. My uncles did this huge thing for uh, their sisters and my grandmother and things like that uh, for Mother's Day. So I went back for that. And I was having a conversation with my uncle who I wouldn't say, I don't even know really how he feels about the military. Um, I do know that I saw more emotion on him the day he saw me walk through that door. Mm -hmm. And I've seen on him my entire life. 
And so at that point, now I'm like really engaged in the things that he's saying. And he's telling me like, yeah, you, I understand what you did. I understand why you did it. Uh, I'm going to ask you for your mother's sake that you don't ever do that again. Mm. You don't make that call again. And it registered, you know, because now I'm looking at my mother and it's Mother's Day. You know, I'm like, yeah, that's probably something that I should give a little bit more thought to um, before committing. And then I start focusing on education, right? It's like if, if I keep my mind here, you know, I'm still doing what I need to do at the reserve unit. I'll find another unit in a couple of years and do what I need to do there. But it's, it's not going to be with the focus of deployment. And so I go to Staff Academy. You know, now I've got that in the box and I'm working towards gunning. So I'm doing all those things. And now I've got orders of 29 Palms. And initially they sent me to center personnel, which these were the brainiacs responsible for the base server. You know, we're talking about 17 years, 18-year-old kids mm. who are responsible for this server that everybody is using. And I just had to be their staff in CYC. And it was easy, right? Like, I, I mean, they did what they needed to do. I think the hardest thing I had to do with them was get them up to PT at 4.30 in the morning. Yeah. But outside of that, it was an easy job. And meanwhile, I'm in 29 Palms. So three, four, one, seven. Like, they've all got a steady rotation going. And one day I was like, I need to be a part of this rotation. I can't be sitting here while men and women are going forward and some of them are get, making it back home. And so I called the Sergeant Major. I was like, hey, can you, you got a spot for me to deploy. And he was obviously happy to receive me. He pulls me over. Um, and immediately I get assigned to the CAG. And uh, then our ADGE kind of loses it. And because uh, it, for whatever impression I made on the executive officer, he wanted to pull me up to be the adjutant. So about midway through deployment, he pulled me up to uh, take the place of the, the gentleman who was the adjutant. He got sent home. You know, What's an adge? It, adjutant. The yeah. adjutant. So he's, uh, so he's the legal officer oh, of, of the battalion. Gotcha. And uh, typically a lieutenant, you know, maybe a captain sometimes, I guess, depending on if you got a general officer or a colonel. But this guy was a lieutenant. Okay. And he, I think I remember his wife was a bookkeeper. and He was an accountant or it could have been the other way around. Yeah. But a very decent dude. But, but not a guy that should be going forward deployed. And we, I think we all kind of knew that. Yeah. But were they going to find somebody? Like, he had to go. Right. And, uh, yeah, like I said, three months into the deployment, and this, I go looking for him because the XO asked me where he was, and I just knew where he was sleeping. I, I'd never been in there. And I go looking for him, and I, a couple knocks, I hear, like, some mumbling, a couple more knocks. I go down, I grab my career planner, the career planner that went with us because he and I were – really close in this deployment. And I was like, look, I, I want somebody to go into this room with me because I don't think our lieutenant's doing well. And we walk in, I kid you not, he's sitting there in just his underwear, you know, no shirt. He's got cami paint on his face. And he's rocking back and forth, and he's saying things that no one could understand. Mm. And so that was a hard thing to report to the executive officer. Uh, so he and I, it, I – I don't remember what I said to him. I do remember that whatever he said back to me, I did not understand. And that's when I was like, yeah, I need to go talk to the XO. And I go to the XO and I had this conversation with him. And obviously he can believe it. CO and Sergeant Major were gone, you know, so now the XO has got to deal with it. And that, that was pretty humbling experience for me as well. You know, like I literally just watched an individual that I've seen and talked to at least every other day, you know, almost completely lose his mind on a deployment, you know, and that, that, that took me to a whole nother level of, yeah, so it, it's not going to be me. I'm not going to be that guy. You know, I'm right. going to keep maintain my composure and keep things together. And then uh, I think I, I began to notice over time that, yeah, now I need to start talking to people because I, if, if I'm not doing that, then I'm not 
going to get better. And, but it didn't stop me from wanting to deploy. Like, right. I, I still continue to look. I still continue to try. But I think when uh, finally when my daughter was born, I've got three boys and one girl. And finally when my daughter was born, I, was, I knew I wasn't going anywhere else. I'm yeah. like, yeah, I'm going to coast this out. I'll do a couple B-billets, um, and then I'll finish out strong. But I, I can't bear any thought of not being around to watch her get older. And yeah. You can't explain it. kids. I don't. I don't think our children will ever really understand as children why their parents commit to these things and do the things that they do, especially with the how it breaks, tears families apart, or just mm-hmm. puts challenges in front of families that are oftentimes they, they don't come out of it. You right. Know? And I already feel like I was contributing so much to that by constantly being gone, constantly pulling, going TAD because I'm still trying to build my Marine Corps resume. And so she was born in El Paso, Texas, and I was like, yeah, I'm never going to do another deployment. In fact, like, I'm not going to go to a school that's going to be more than, like, two or three weeks. Yeah. You know, because I want to be around for that. And so that's when you decided you're done with the Marine Corps. It, that, and it's still a hard decision, but what made it easier for me was First Sergeant Rivera was my first sergeant when I was in El Paso, Texas. And these guys are now getting ready to go to Afghanistan. And he's like, do you want to go? And I go, yes, I do. He goes, but remember the conversation we had about, you know, your daughter's born now, you know, maybe mm-hmm. that's a decision you don't need to make right now. And I was, I responded with, how am I going to do my part if I'm not going with these guys? And, he, and that's when he told me that, you know what, what you need to understand is that you can do your part in so many different aspects in the Marine Corps. And he goes, that's why there's so many jobs out there because not everybody needs to carry a rifle right. and get on the front lines. You know, sometimes you just want to support. And he, he made me understand more that like, I do want, to be a leader, I do want to train it. I'm a, I'm a gunny this time, you know, but I'm still thinking about first sergeant. I'm still thinking about sergeant major. And so he got me to the point where now I just really need to develop my people skills, my administrative skills, you know, my communication skills, you know, talking, dealing with, addressing position of authorities. And I can do what I need to do for this organization that way. And so once I made that commitment, sergeant major was, was what I was going to do. And even during recruiting duty, when I considered, like, well, you know, I don't have to go back to the fleet. I can be a recruiter, you know, and just put people in. Even during that process, I, I didn't feel like I was being a leader that maybe I was meant to yeah. be or wanted to be, whichever way it was. And so that's when I made the commitment to first sergeant, sergeant major. And that, those became my goals, to make sure that I can lead and mentor Marines. So how did it feel when you finally made it to that sergeant major? Whew. Yeah, when I found out when yeah. I when we connected again, you said you're Sergeant Major. I'm like, man, good on you. As much as I was like, this is what I was going to do, I never thought I'd get there. Like, I always thought that something's going to hold me back, something's going to stop me. And I even got to the point. So I, there's, there's no reason for me to be in zone that year. Like, right. it, when I'm doing a math and the guys that I've gone through my schools with and these guys were all, like, already two years ahead of me and they had just been promoted, you know, the, the previous year, I'm thinking I've got at least another year before um, – I'm even going to be looked at for Sergeant yeah. Major. Not only that, but I only had one year left in Okinawa, and now I'm done. Right? Yeah. I'm done. I've got my 20 years that I said I was going to do, and I'm going to get out. And then that November, the list drops, and one of my Marine reaches. I was like, congratulations, Sergeant Major. And I see it. I was coaching a CrossFit class yeah. at the time, and I just, like, just drew blanks. Yeah. And for, like, five minutes, I think I forgot about my athletes. Like, I forgot they were all yeah. in the gym working out. And uh, it, at that point, it's like, well, you're there. And then the very next day, I get a phone call from 
my drill instructor, who was a SAR major about to get out of Marine Corps, who was going to be on the board and said, so I'm looking at your package right now, and your package hasn't been updated in a few years. And my response was, yeah, that's because I didn't think SAR major was going to be my thing. I figured I was going to end up retiring as a first sergeant. And he said, well, you've got all about 24 hours to give me everything I need if you want to be on this board. And yeah. I got it. You know, he reached out to him after that. And uh, he was like, yeah, you're going to be a SAR major. And that it was not just humbling, but a shock, which is weird because that's what I wanted. And now I'm, I have it. So now I've got to prove everything I said I was going to prove. And you finished out your career where? Uh, my last duty station was in uh, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. I uh, started with 3-8, and 3-8 was disbanded. But prior to that, they were getting ready to mobilize to go on a MU. And I ended up going to uh, Second Anglico. So these are the, the you know, the, the Anglico is basically the naval uh, warfare gun guys. And they're the ones calling in things for artillery and where sure. the planes need to drop. And they're different. They're, and w when I say different, I mean it in a very good way. You know, it's, it, it, a lot of people can see it in a bad way, but I mean it in a very good way. They, just like we've seen with Recon, you know, just like, like we've seen with MARSAC, MARSAC, they've got a culture, mm. right? And they're not busy, but they're busy, right? They're, they're not intense, but they're intense. You know, you, you know that when you walk into the room and they've got training going on, everybody in there is doing what they need to be doing and they're going to be successful. And I ended up with uh, the Colonel at the time was Lieutenant Colonel Schwerz. And I remember meeting him and it, we got off to a really good foot, but uh, I do like, remember I was so excited about being part of the unit. Like I said, some things like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that to the yeah. Colonel, you know, but he brought that back when uh, he and I sat down, when I finally, you know, did my change of command, I sat down with him and he was like, I think one of the most inspiring things you've ever said to me was the conversation we had the day that you came to do your change command. And I go, why is that, sir? And he responded with, because I know you're going to want to be a leader of these Marines. And uh, what I need to make sure is that you are taking care of yourself. First time, any commanding officer outside of Major Quinlan at the recruiting center, um, which it was never a personal conversation between he and I. It was yeah. always like, hey, Marines, take care of yourselves. I care about you. I love you. And we all believed it. Right. But first time, and here we are, 21 years in the Marine Corps, that uh, – officer looked at me and said that I'm not telling you you are the cream of the crop right now I'm telling you I'm going to need you to be the cream of the crop mm -hmm. but in order for me to ensure that I got to know that you're well taken care of and I knew that he cared about me you know we have two questions we always ask our leaders right like do you care about me and can I trust you and that became a, a very signified moment between he and I and so I've been out for uh about a year and a half now and uh last year He'd send me a happy birthday, Marie, nice. and ask me how I was doing. This year, first message. As soon as I opened up my phone, happy birthday, Marie. How are you doing? How's the family? Um, and so that, that, that tells me what that, this institution is about and what our commitments and dedication is about. Sounds to me like you, you found that community you were looking for when you, when you left college and you were yep. like, what, what do I want to do? And, and I, mean, I found it too, and mm -hmm. that's how we connected. We yep. uh, Hadn't seen each other for over a decade yeah. and uh, <laughs> fortunate to be working alongside you. And, and tonight's the Marine Corps birthday. Are you going to head out and do any, any uh, camaraderie with the boys or are you going to stay in tonight? So I miss balls. Yeah. I miss Marine Corps balls. I miss birthday balls. And I really wanted to go to the recruiting one last uh, 
last weekend, but I'm like slammed with all my studies. So yeah. I just, I just couldn't do it. Cause I knew I wouldn't be able to go and leave. Like I'd sit around for a couple of days. And so, but I think I reached out to you somewhere around there. I was like, Hey, are you guys doing anything yeah. that I could be a part of? And so the deal that's going on tonight, uh, I believe it's in Clive. Yep. Uh, I'm going to go and partake in that. And then I have to pick up my mother-in-law from the airport, but then I've got class on Saturday. Oh, so it's going to be really quick. Yeah, it's not yeah, going to yeah. be like back in the day. Right, you know, right, right. We had a 96 and we're partying for three, four days. It's not going right. to be like that. Um, but I, I think uh, even with the, the students that are in my class, there's a couple of veterans down there and I've talked to a couple of my instructors and they know my background, you know, they, whether they've read my bio, whether they saw that awesome feed you put in Des Moines, yeah. register uh, when I started working in DMAC, uh, they know my background and not only that, but they what they don't understand, they try to understand. Right. And it, even like, I'm like, I don't know if I can come to class tomorrow right. because it's, it does a lot to me, you know, and yeah. you know, being, being Genopolis anniversary, you know, little things like that. I take him and I take the names of faces of all the men and women I've served with that didn't come back. And me being a guy to want to be around other people, yeah. You know, during these two days, it's not, it's, it's difficult. Right. You know, so uh, I am, I'm looking forward to being around uh, basically my new culture, you know, the educators, yeah. uh, being, being around my new culture and uh, celebrating with them, but in a completely different way than I have in the past. You know, now I can be thankful for everything I've done in the service. I can be thankful for the men and women that are still in the service and I can appreciate what I'm doing in my life and with others and, there's a weird connection there because of how it grew me to be the person I am today. Absolutely. Well, I'm not going to make it to the ball because um, I got other commitments, but I do want to <laughs> do want to have yeah. a, the unofficial drink of the Marine Corps with you and uh, celebrate the 248th birthday of the Marine Corps. It's done a lot for us. Uh, glad it brought you into my life and all these other guys that I've had an opportunity to serve alongside. So yeah, here's to the Corps. Absolutely. Happy birthday, Marine. Hurrah. Hurrah. So oh. our our story, mine and yours, has probably been told more times than you would even know. And I you've probably told it just as many times as I tell people, but anytime I, I talk about my position at at DMAC, it I put a, a lot of tribute to you. And it doesn't just go to like, you know, he he saw me, you know, he he did what he needed to do because he had he had a program he had to fill, you know, that he needed somebody in, but I was the guy that he chose to put in that position. So I know what you, I don't know specifically, but I know as a leader and mentor that you, you had to go through some things to get things moving the way you needed to move in the time frame that you needed and, and the budgeting and the fight. I get it. Yeah. And uh, when, when I tell the story, I always start with, you know, when I, I just sent an application in and then I get a random email back, you know, from somebody that's like, this Rico Moss, I'm like, all right, here we go again, <laughs> you know? And then you say who you are and I'm like, why is that name so familiar to me? So then I Google you. Right. And, uh, before I even saw your accomplishments, I saw your face and I go, Oh, that's right. Yeah. You know, Corporal Diaz. And yeah. I, I remember you from weapons and I, I remember you guys that started thinking about geo, you yeah. know, I started thinking about other guys, Vance, other guys that were a part of that. And I can't remember the stats or his name right now. Thomas. Thomas, yeah. yeah. The, like a meat eater, dude. Yeah, and, uh, big boy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, and so then I started looking at your list of accomplishments. And it's, you're a Marine, right? And not only were you a Marine, but you became an educator. You know, you became a, a, 
uh, I think you were a counselor at one point or, yeah. or principal. Uh, yeah, principal. Principal. Um, counselor, principal. Yeah, I, same thing. We did it all. Yeah, yeah. just higher, higher <laughs> echelon. Uh, and, and then, you know, the Woodward Academy. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm reading all this stuff, and I'm like, you know, this is what Marines do. Yeah. Right? They get out, and they find a place in society and life, and they contribute. And there's, even when I remembered you from the deployment, I knew that there's a thousand things you could have done to set yourself completely away from the education community or the counseling community, yeah. just things that you, you want, you've always want to do and things you can do. And you stayed in a community that there's, I think it's always been the greater need right. of our nation. Yeah. Right. And so that when we, when I, when I put all that, summed all that up in five minutes that yeah. I was looking at uh, your accomplishments, I was like, if I think the best thing in life for me to do right now is go work yeah. for Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad you're with yeah. us. You're making a difference. And, and I'm glad you're, you're entering this field because it's uh, education, man. It, 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 it's rewarding. We need people like you. We need people like me. We just need a lot of people willing to put the work in for these kids because uh, it's a, it's a, it's a tough road ahead. Oh, and yeah. I'm glad. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see where you're going to go with this. And, you know, you got my support, whatever you need. Awesome. So, all right. All right. Well, with that, we appreciate the, the opportunity to share some stories. I, hopefully you found some value. And, and some of what we've uh, gone through, spe specifically Rico's been through a lot and um, persevered and has made a good life for himself. So until the next episode, um, we'll see you at the, see where the roads take us. Thanks. Hurrah. This podcast is brought to you by Infinite Resources, a local staffing agency connecting diverse job candidates and central Iowa companies.